All right, today we are going to do our introduction to Exodus, our introduction to Exodus. Exodus is a fascinating book, and Exodus has fascinated a lot of people for many years, uh, even up to Hollywood. You know, Hollywood has produced several big-time movies centered on the Exodus. Uh, We find, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments movie way back in the day with Charlton Heston, and then we find the uh, the animated movie, The Prince of Egypt. That was a popular hit years ago. And then the most recent, Gods and Kings. Uh, so you see even the secular world, the world of Hollywood, is even latched on to the book of Exodus and the story that we find here because we find a lot of uh, sensational, fascinating things going on. We find a lot of action. We have heroes and villains. And it's just a perfect story to tell. But for us in this class, when we are interpreting Scripture, Exodus follows the same lines as Genesis. We are still following the covenant narrative that we began back in Genesis. In Genesis 1-11, through if you remember, we saw the escalation of sin take over the world. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we saw God making covenant with Abraham. And we said that the story of redemption narrows to focus on Abraham and then his sons, Isaac and Jacob, uh, and then Jacob, who would become Israel, his 12 sons that would become the nation of Israel. And we left off the story at the end of Genesis in our last session with the children of Israel, Jacob's sons and their families, living in Egypt because of a famine in the land of Israel. So they had, uh, or in the land of Canaan at the time, so they came down to uh, Egypt and God provided for them because who was second in command in Egypt? Well, it was their brother Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. And he was in a rulership, so God's sovereign hand was upon Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel at the time. Well, hundreds of years have passed between the end of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. At the very end of Genesis, Joseph dies, and after several hundred years, we find ourselves here in a different world. We're told in the first chapter of Exodus that there is now a king that is ruling who did not know Joseph, or Joseph meant nothing to him. And this new king comes into power, and he sees the people of Israel, that they have grown exceedingly great, they have increased in numbers, and they filled uh, the land of Egypt. And this new king came into power, and he said, this, this people is great, and they are a threat to us. So he forced them into labor, and they became slaves. So they've lived a total, when we get here to Exodus, they've lived a total of over 400 years in Egypt, and part of that time as slaves under the hand of Pharaoh, under the hand of his taskmasters. But yet... It seems like the promise is lost, but the promise is not lost. The promise still stands. And God is getting ready to deliver his people from the hands of their oppressors. He's getting ready to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh and out of Egypt and bring them unto their promise. 
For what we see happening here is that part of the covenant promise is being fulfilled. If you remember, the covenant promise made to Abraham and subsequently to Isaac and Jacob is that God would raise up a great nation and would give them a land. Well, now they're becoming a great nation. Uh, It says in verse number 7 of Exodus chapter 1, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So the promise of a great nation is coming to pass, but yet the promise, the covenant promise of land seems farther than it ever has been before. For now, the people of Israel are not in the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to them, but they are in Egypt. So God is getting ready to do a delivering work for his people. And that's where we come to the book of Exodus at. So the name Exodus, the name of the book, that name is taken from the central event that the book describes. And that is the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. The word exodus is a Greek word that means way out or exit. God is providing a way out or an exit from Egypt. So the exodus is the Israelites being led free out from Egypt under the leadership of a man God is going to raise up called Moses. And we're going to spend most of our time next week talking about Moses, for he has a fascinating story as well. But when you talk about the Exodus, you can't overstate the importance of the Exodus. The Exodus from captivity in Egypt is one of the single most significant events in the history of Israel. They commemorate the Passover every year. Passover is one of the major festivals in Israel. And the Passover uh, commemorates this event where God delivered his people out of Egyptian bondage. So that's where the name Exodus comes from. Now, the purpose of the book of Exodus serves about four different purposes. And we're going to repeat these purposes a couple of times today in our session. And we're going to pick up on these purposes and we're going to pick up on these themes uh, all throughout the book of Exodus. So the purpose of Exodus is to explain how the Israelites who became slaves in Egypt were delivered from Egyptian oppression. That's the purpose of the book. Also, the purpose of the book, the book also reveals the God whose name is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, recognizing his covenant partnership with Israel. So the book reveals the God whose name is Yahweh and how he made covenant with Israel through the old covenant of Mount Sinai, and then ultimately how his divine presence would dwell among his people. So those are several of your themes already within the purpose of the book. The theme of deliverance, the theme of God's revelation to his people. You know, when Moses asked, well, when I go to the people, who do I tell them has sent me? Uh, So God's revelation to Israel, the covenant that God makes with Israel, and then how his divine presence came to dwell among his people. Now, these purposes of Exodus are worked out in several different ways. Uh, The first way the purposes worked out is the book describes the hostility that came toward Israel in Egypt. So again, when we come to the first chapter of Exodus in verse number nine, the new king, who Joseph meant nothing to, says, look, 
The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. So the purpose of the book of Exodus shows how God delivered his people. And we get to that point. That purpose is worked out, first of all, by describing the hostility that came toward Israel in Egypt. Secondly, uh, the purpose is worked out by giving the history and supernatural call of Moses, who would be Israel's great deliverer. So we have this story of Moses that we'll look uh, into in more detail next week. But we have this story of Moses, how he is supernaturally uh, protected and how he is taken again, just like we saw with Joseph, where Joseph, even through difficult circumstances, was put in the right place at the right time. Moses as well, even as a baby, when he has no control over the situation, is put in the right place and God is protecting him and bringing him unto the right place in order to work out his will, in order for God to work out his will in Moses's life. So we know Moses has the supernatural encounter uh, with God in the burning bush. So we have the history and the supernatural call of Moses, Israel's great deliverer. We also have uh, highlighting God's absolute power over the Egyptians, the Egyptian gods, and his delivering power to save his people. You know, and this is one of the more fascinating points that we see here that Hollywood likes to uh, point out, and that is God's power over the Egyptian gods. When we will look into the uh, ten plagues, the ten plagues are almost God making war with the Egyptian gods. And you have the greatest ruler in the world, Pharaoh, but yet God is defeating Pharaoh. He's using these, these slave people to defeat the greatest army on the planet. Uh, he's parting the Red Sea. So we have God's absolute power over the Egyptian scene here. Number four, we have the purpose working out in God covenanting with Israel at the giving of the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. And it's at Mount Sinai that God covenants, makes a covenant with his people, gives them the law that will govern them as a people. And then we have God revealing himself to his people and establishing the tabernacle as his presence among them. So ultimately, when we get into the book of Exodus, we will see God giving them instructions to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is going to be the centerpiece of the whole camp. And all the, uh, and all the tribes are going to camp around the tabernacle. And God's presence is going to dwell with them in the midst of them in the tabernacle. So the, this is how some of these purposes are worked out. So some of the key themes or key ideas, if you will, that we see in Exodus is the supremacy of Yahweh over pagan deities. We see, number two, the Exodus as a redemptive event for ancient Israel. We see the Mosaic law as a religious and social charter for Israel. And we see the presence of God symbolized in the tabernacle. And number five, we see that Yahweh and Yahweh alone is worthy of Israel's worship. So these are some of the key religious ideas 
that we for some of the key theological ideas that we find in Exodus, the supremacy of God, the redemption of Israel, the Mosaic law, the presence in the tabernacle, and God as Yahweh alone worthy of Israel's worship. So that's kind of some introduction that we see here to the book of Exodus. Uh, you have on your study guide an outline of Exodus, and the outline of Exodus is divided into three major parts. The first major part takes place, the first scene, if you will, is Israel in Egypt. And this takes place from chapter 1, going all the way through chapter 12, verse number 36. So Israel and Egypt is number one. Number two is the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And that takes place in chapters 12, verse 37, going down through chapter 18. And then the majority of the book is the third uh, part of Exodus, and that is the covenant and law at Mount Sinai. And this takes place from Exodus chapter 19 all the way through Exodus chapter 40, where we have the beginnings of the covenant, we have the Ten Commandments, the covenant code, uh, and then the instructions for building the tabernacle, which takes up 15 chapters at the end of Exodus. So when you're reading the book of Exodus, uh, the first part of the book of Exodus begins to read like a story. You know, it reads uh, much like Genesis read uh, when we were reading that. It's very narrative. And then we see when we come to the giving of the law and the preparations of the tabernacle, things kind of begin to slow down as far as story. And a lot of people get bogged down when you start talking about uh, the law and the different covenant codes and the tabernacle, and many people don't see much purpose in that, and um, that's where a lot of people lose steam, but there is some good stuff when we get toward the end of the book of Exodus that we will highlight in a couple of weeks. In our next section, as we're still talking about our introduction, uh, we'll just say a couple of things about the author of, of uh, Exodus. Uh, the author of Exodus, the authorship of Exodus, uh, kind of mirrors the authorship of Genesis, According to Jewish and Christian tradition, Moses wrote the book of Exodus at the command of God in connection with Israel's covenant experience at Mount Sinai. So most Christian Jewish conservative traditions hold that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. Of course, uh, you know, even conservative scholars can see that maybe uh, Moses didn't write every word, especially toward the end of the first five books of the Bible, but even some scholars contend that Moses uh, wrote the major portions of Exodus, but certain additions could have been made by later editors. Uh, but still, most of your Jewish and Christian conservative the uh, theologians uh, believe that Moses wrote the majority of the book of Exodus. Uh, the date of the Exodus, and we'll talk more about this in just a moment, there are two dates that the Exodus, the event, could have taken place. One of those dates is in 1446 B.C., and the other one is in 1270 B.C., and we'll just highlight something about that in just a few moments. When you talk about reading the book, the genre of the book of Exodus, uh, the genre has, as a whole, is what we refer to, like we did with Genesis, theological history. And theological history focuses on God's relationship with Israel involving his self-disclosure. So theology teaches us about God. So Exodus is written, and it's written in story form, 
even though it's taken from historical events, it's taking from historical events written in story form to teach us about God. So theological history narrates what actually happened in the past, but does so in a way that presents a compelling picture of God. It's telling a story. It's not a made-up story. It's based on actual events that happen, but yet it presents God, a, it presents a very purposeful picture of God, and the actions are presented as very purposeful in their actions. Uh, so Exodus is primarily theological history, but Exodus also contains a lengthy section of law, as we talked about in the, the covenant. Uh, another significant genre in the book is song, which is a form of poetry. So there's a little bit of poetry in the book of Exodus as well. But overall, we see Exodus as theological history. The setting, uh, we've already talked about the setting in our introduction. Uh, the setting picks up where Genesis left off with the children of Israel in Egypt, but now they have become slaves. And with the birth of Moses, uh, God is going to answer this predicament that they are in as being people enslaved to the land of Egypt. Again, just uh, to go back over some of the themes of Exodus, the three major themes, uh, if we can break it down to three. Uh, number one is God saves Israel from Egyptian bondage. That is chapters 1 through 18. Uh, and this is the act of deliverance. Uh, number two, God gives Israel the law, which comes from chapters 19 to 24. And then number three, God commands Israel to build the tabernacle, chapters 25 through 40, dealing with the presence of God. So the three major themes, if you had to pick three major themes, deliverance, covenant, and law, and the presence of God. Deliverance, covenant, and law, and the presence of God. God. So you can see how Exodus is set up in such a way that it presents God's greatness. Now, like Genesis, there are those that are critical of some of the things that we find in Exodus. And our study here is the Old Testament for grown-ups. So one aspect of this study is that while we don't make this the main focus and we interpret the book as we have it before us, we recognize that there are some difficult questions that people have asked over the years about the book of Exodus. There are critical scholars that pose some different ideas that may challenge us in our traditional way of thinking. And we don't shy away from those questions. We engage those questions uh, because those questions are out there. And those questions are out there in a greater capacity than ever before. All it takes is for your child or your grandchild to do a quick Google search of the Exodus. And the first thing they're going to find on the internet is that the Exodus is a made-up story. And that it really didn't happen the way the Bible says. So we have to understand, even as people that believe the Bible is the Word of God and believe what it says... Uh, we have to address some of these issues because they are out there. And if we are not equipped to address them, then it could really cause people to stumble if we don't have an answer, but the word does or the world does. So we're going to look at some of these uh, questions. Um, while we as people who believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we accept the Exodus for how it's presented in the Bible, we must be aware of and be prepared to address some of the critical questions that may arise. And the biggest critical question that comes when talking about the Exodus is this. 
Did these things really happen? Did these things really happen? When we looked at the book of Genesis, we saw that Genesis shares stories from other nations and other religions in the ancient Near East, say like the flood or the creation story. We know that other nations with other gods had different creation stories. Some were similar to the Genesis story, but we highlighted the differences. Uh, There were other nations and other cultures that had ancient flood stories uh, with heroes like a Noah. And these stories predate uh, the stories that we have or the accounts that we have in the Bible. So the question when it comes to the Exodus is, did it really happen? Now, here are some of the different answers you're going to get. If you approach people who are conservative scholars who believe in the total inspiration of Scripture, they're going to say, absolutely. This happened exactly as it said, that the Bible records accurate history, and it doesn't matter what anything else shows. We believe in the historicity, and we believe in the inspiration of Scriptures. So that's what your conservative scholars would say, is that they absolutely believe that everything is written in Exodus is written exactly as it says. Then you have other scholars on the far other end of the spectrum, and they would believe that all of the events of Exodus are made up, that it's a made-up story uh, passed down uh, as oral history that they, that Israel ultimately uh, came up with this story of their origins as a people. So I don't believe anything that happened. Then you have some that are kind of in the middle, and these biblical scholars and archaeologists um, argue about the aspects, certain aspects of Israel's exodus, but most of them agree that something happened in one form or another. So these scholars in the middle believe that there was some form of exodus that occurred. It may not look exactly as what we have in the book of Exodus, that the writer of Exodus, which most of these scholars would probably say was not Moses, but that most of the events are rooted in history, but yet they're given a little extra flair in order to get their point across that there may have been slaves in Egypt that escaped, but it may not have happened as spectacular as we are led to read in the book of Exodus. So there are differing opinions, and those are the three opinions, from your very conservative scholars to your very liberal scholars to those who are kind of in the middle uh, that would hold that something occurred. Now, why do people believe it's a made-up story? Or why do they believe it doesn't, it didn't happen the way we exactly have it? Well, that's a good question to ask. And the reason that people either say the story was made up or that it didn't happen exactly as we read in the book of Exodus is because, and this is a true statement, it's because that we have no direct evidence outside of the Bible that these events took place. There is no hard and direct evidence that two million Israelites were ever slaves in the land of Egypt. Egypt certainly kept a lot of records, but they don't have any record in any of their history 
that the people of Israel were ever in Egypt. They also have no record that uh, all of the firstborn children in Egypt ever died in one night. That's a pretty big event, but there's no record of that outside of the Bible. There's no record outside of the Bible that these two million people who were slaves had an exodus out of Egypt, that they crossed the Red Sea, and that the Egyptian army drowned in the Red Sea. Uh, there is no direct evidence outside of the Bible for these events. There's also no archaeological evidence uh, that Israel was ever in Egypt. There's no archaeological evidence that Israel was in uh, the wilderness. So because there's no mention of Israel or Moses in Egyptian sources, um, even though some people have tried to uh, made so-called, dis- so-called discoveries, uh, all those are very misleading, if not fraudulent. Uh, and the fact is there are there is no direct evidence outside of the Bible for the Exodus. And that's why you have very liberal scholars that say this was all made up. Or you have scholars kind of in the middle that say, well, it wasn't totally made up. Something happened, but yet it may not have happened just like it said in the Bible. So how do we address some of these issues? Well, we have to admit, first of all, that there is no direct evidence outside of the Bible for the Exodus. But there could be good reason for that. Number one, if there was a group of slaves in in Egypt, that may not be worth writing about that they were there. You know, every nation had slaves at this time. And we don't have record of all of those. I'm sure Egypt had many other slaves all throughout their history, but not every group of slaves are ever written about. That was not something that is, was commonly wrote about and kept in the ancient world. So just because there's no record of people of, of Israel being enslaved, that does not mean it didn't happen. Also, because there's no record of the exodus and the drowning of, you know, the Egyptian army in the Red Sea or the the plagues ever happening, again, if you're Egypt and you are the greatest nation on the planet at the time, slave people overthrowing, you know, Pharaoh escaping and defeating your army in the Red Sea, that would be pretty embarrassing. And that would be something you wouldn't want remembered in your archives. That's not something you would want other nations to be, to remember about you. So it's no surprise that there's not a record of this in Egypt, because why would Egypt want to remember such an embarrassing event from their perspective? Also, If you are Israel and you're writing about your history, then you would think you would make up a better story than our ancestors started out as slaves in Egypt. If they were totally making this story up, they wouldn't have been so uncomplimentary about their past as to include suffering and servitude if it wasn't true. You would think they would make up a better story than that. So while it is true that we don't have this external evidence for the Exodus, 
that does not discount what the Bible says. For the Bible, and for those of us that you know are more conservative on, on, on the conservative end of the spectrum and believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we believe that the Bible is an accurate account. That even if Egypt doesn't keep records of the Exodus, that this is the Israelite record of the Exodus. So that in itself should give credence to this story. So is Exodus historically reliable? Well, at best, those of us that believe the inspiration of Scripture say absolutely it is historically reliable. And these events happen like they did. And even other scholars that may not hold to a strict conservative view would say, well, you know, something had to have happened. And that these events, even though they may uh, be sensationalized or put in a form to tell a better story, that they are rooted in absolute history, that there were the ancestors of Israel in Egypt and they were delivered by God's hand out from Pharaoh. So is Exodus reliable? Well, we believe it is, even in the face of not much evidence outside of the Bible. Uh, Another question is, when did the Exodus happen? We're not going to spend much time on this uh, because at the end of the day, um, we can't 100% nail down, you know, the exact date of the Exodus, um, but we still can affirm the reality of the events. There's an early date for the Exodus and there's a late date for the Exodus. The early date uh, comes from actually 1 Kings chapter 6 which dates the Exodus 480 years before Solomon built the temple in 966 B.C. So we get a date there of around 1446 B.C. for the Exodus. Now there is a late date because Exodus 1.11 makes the statement that the Israelites worked on the construction of a couple of cities. And one of these cities is the city of Ramses, which is believed to have been built by Pharaoh Ramses II. However, Pharaoh the Ramses II did not rule until 1279 to 1213. Thus, the Exodus couldn't have taken place prior to when Ramses began to rule. So you have these what are seemingly conflicting dates. Do we know which date is correct? Well, we don't know exactly which date is correct. Uh, But again, uh, we don't have to have a certain date to affirm the reality of these events. Another big question that we find when we come to the book of Exodus is this question. What about the Red Sea? Number one, did it happen like the Bible says? And number two, where was the Red Sea at? What route, well, what route did the Exodus or did the Israelites take after leaving Egypt? Well, you have a couple of views you have what is the traditional view of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, like we have in most of our Bibles. And then you have a modern view that differs on the place of the crossing here of the Red Sea. And it's all centered upon the fact, if you look in your notes, we have, the, we have a, two Hebrew words called Yom Sup. Y-A-M-S-U-P, Yom Sup. And these are two Hebrew words where the English translations get the word or get the words Red Sea from. So the traditional interpretation is that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. And if you look on the very back of your paper, 
uh, we have a map, and you see the Red Sea, uh, what is moving up. You see actually the, the sea is divided, so you see the left side over there is the Red Sea, and you see the little arrow toward the top of the Red Sea, and that is your traditional place of the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, why do people disagree and say, well, maybe it wasn't the Red Sea? Well, it's because of those two words we just talked about, Yom Sup, which have traditionally been translated Red Sea, but when you take those words and you do a strict translation of them, they do not translate as Red Sea, they translate as Reed, R-E-E-D, Reed Sea, or a literal translation would be the Sea of Reeds. So a modern view of critical scholarship now believes that Israel crossed not the Red Sea, but one of the freshwater lakes east of the Nile Delta, uh, such as the Bitter Lakes or the Suez Canal. If you go back to your map, if you notice where the arrow crosses the Red Sea, if you look directly north of that, you'll see another couple of smaller lakes, uh, which are called the Bitter Lakes. Well, this would be in the area where some of the modern scholars would think that this not Red Sea, but Reed Sea was, and that the Israelites came to this Reed Sea and God parted a sea of reeds, not the traditional view of the Red Sea. Well, the traditional view of the Red Sea, there is a lot of basis for it being interpreted Red Sea. Even though Yom Sup is literally translated Sea of Reeds, uh, these words appear many times in the Bible, and in a number of these instances, it clearly refers to the body of water that we know as the Red Sea. Um, the earliest translations of the Hebrew Bible, which is the Septuagint, uh, it translates these words Red Sea. And so they obviously understanding the Exodus to be referring to a Red Sea, not some other kind of water. So you'll often hear this about the Reed Sea instead of the Red Sea. And again, regardless of the way the words Yom Sup are translated, the Bible's clear that God supernaturally parted a large body of water so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. And when the Egyptian army attempted to follow, he destroyed them with an overwhelming flood. So that's kind of the controversy on the Red Sea. Uh, the final question or controversy that we'll talk about today is the 10 plagues. Uh, there are several ways that critics have viewed the plagues of Egypt. Um, the first sees the plagues not as supernatural events, but as natural disasters. And you have on your paper the way that uh, scholars could see these natural disasters unfolding uh, to make it seem like this is divine intervention. Um, the second is that many Egyptian plagues could also be interpreted as an attack against the Egyptian pantheon. Uh, many of the Egyptian plagues mentioned in Exodus in the Bible have some correlation to Egyptian gods or, or goddesses. I believe that this part does have merit in it, and we'll show that next week when we come together. Thirdly, the ten plagues. Uh, some critics see these ten plagues not as literal plagues that happened in Egypt, but yet the ten plagues are used in a unique literary uh, way to increase the faith of the surviving Israelites. Uh, it pointed out that the ten plagues carry a certain pattern. 
that lends more toward being a literary narrative than actual history itself. So those are some of the uh, ways critical scholars look at the Ten Plagues. Of course, you know, then you have those that are on the very conservative side that believe the Ten Plagues happened exactly as it says in the book of Exodus through the inspiration of the Scripture. So we didn't want to spend a lot of time on those questions, but they are relevant questions because not everybody believes the Bible uh, to be the infallible inspired Word of God. And it is good to know some of the critical aspects that people ask. But I believe, and I believe we believe, at the end of the day that these stories are credible and they do record history. But yet at the same time, they do teach us and they are fashioned in a way to teach us about God and to continue this story and this narrative um, about the covenant. And there are so many things in the New Testament that point back to Exodus as well. And we'll talk about some of those. So let's talk about specific advice for reading Exodus today as Christians. Um, Apart from the questions that we just asked, the main focus with us and what we're going to focus on from here going out is not these critical questions, but it's what do we get from reading Exodus as God's story. Now, does accurate history matter? Well, sure it does, to the point that it would give greater confirmation to the world around us. But to the Christian, ultimately, our acceptance on the Scriptures isn't because of physical evidence, but because of faith that we have in God through Jesus Christ. So I take the Old Testament, I take Exodus and Genesis seriously because of Jesus, because I have faith in Jesus, and I know Jesus has changed my life, and Jesus took these events seriously, so I do as well. So as part of the writings of Moses, the Christian should be attentive to how the book of Exodus anticipates the coming of Jesus, because ultimately, for the believer in Jesus Christ, Yes, we can look at all the historical evidence and the archaeological evidence and the literary evidence and all of this. But at the end of the day, for us as Christians, all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. And as we look at Exodus this way, we marvel at how the Old Testament guides us to a proper appreciation of how Jesus fulfills the Exodus how Jesus fulfills the law, and how Jesus fulfills the tabernacle. So ultimately, as Christians, in our interpretation, we see Exodus as being fulfilled in Christ. So I've listed here, as we uh, kind of wrap up our session today, I've listed here some theological themes in the book of Exodus, some theological themes in the book of Exodus. The first theological theme is this theme of Old Covenant and New Covenant. Or you could say the theological theme of law and grace. So one of the questions that's asked today when we start talking about Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant, law and grace, is, is the church under the law? Is the church under the Old Covenant? Because the Old Covenant law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and in it contained the Ten Commandments. In the law of Moses contained over 600 other laws, and the purpose was to govern Israel as a nation of people. 
and the people of Israel were to live in complete obedience to the commands of the law, which included moral laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws. And if they kept the law, if they obeyed the law, blessings were promised to them. If they did not keep the law and they did not obey the law, curses would come upon them if they disobeyed. Well, ultimately, Israel would fail to keep the law, and they would suffer punishment, they would suffer exile because of it. But yet, we still have these laws, and we have the Ten Commandments, and probably the Ten Commandments, if you grew up in church, were one of the first things that you learned, and they were on every Sunday school classroom and in every lobby of a church, and so we would naturally assume that Christians are still under the law. Even looking in our own nation in America, there's this term that we use that America was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Now, the word Judeo-Christian obviously has the connotation of being part Jewish and part Christian. So we say, well, many of the laws in America were founded upon the Ten Commandments and upon the freedom of religion that Christians held. So it's upon Judeo-Christian. So it's naturally assumed by some people that the church is under the law because the law was given here in Exodus. Well, when you look at the scripture, you find something very interesting. You find that when Jesus is born, and Galatians tells us this, that Jesus was born of a woman. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. You find out something else when you read the New Testament. You find that the law was given as a shadow until Christ came. You find that New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, are not under law, but under grace. You find that Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant law, to abolish the old order that was established in Exodus, and to bring in a new covenant, which is prophesied in Jeremiah 31. And this new covenant is a new covenant, not of law, because Jesus said, or the scripture says there, God does, that I will make a new covenant with Israel, unlike the old covenant. And this new covenant is a covenant of grace, based upon the life-transforming power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So when it comes to law and grace, and is the church under law, I want to make a very emphatic statement. Christians are not under the law, nor were they ever under the law. Neither are Christians bound to the old covenant law. First of all, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was only given to the nation of Israel. Israel. It was only given to Israel. So when you come to the New Testament, Christ is preached, but then you have these religious groups like the Pharisees and the Judaizers. And they came to Gentile Christians who were not Jewish, and they would try to bring these Gentile Christians under the law and add obedience to the observances of the law as part of Christian salvation. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians and in many other places plainly condemns this teaching. 
that Christians are not under the law, that Christians are governed by the Holy Spirit of God that leads us into all righteousness. So the answer is no, Christians are not under the old covenant that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai. Going along with that, the second thing that we see is in the New Testament, we learn about the sacrificial system and the sacrifice of Christ. You know, as studying in the Gospel of John, we find in the first chapter of John that John the Baptist in declaring Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When John the Baptist says, The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he's referring back to the sacrificial system that was established in Exodus and the Torah. Included in the Old Covenant is a sacrificial system whereby animals would be sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. Now, Jesus would ultimately come, just like he fulfilled the law, he fulfills the sacrificial system by becoming a sacrifice himself. And Jesus' sacrifice is described as a better sacrifice. Whereas the old covenant sacrifices made a partial and temporary covering for sin, Jesus was the complete and final sacrifice for the removal of sin bringing about eternal redemption. And you can read about that in Hebrews chapter 8 through 10. Christ is also portrayed as the Passover lamb, the lamb without flaw or blemish that was sacrificed for the sins of God's people. So Christ is the ultimate and final sacrifice, bearing our sin and dying a substitutionary death for us. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, but Christ's blood did atone and take away our sin. A third, uh, a third issue that we see that is brought from Exodus to the New Testament is the idea of the tabernacle and the presence of God. We said that God would establish in the book of Exodus a tabernacle and all of the tribes of Israel would gather around the tabernacle and set up camp. And the tabernacle would be the primary means of God's presence. Well, when we come to the New Testament, we're continuing this narrative of presence. We see presence, first of all, in the garden of Eden back in Genesis, where God is walking with Adam in the cool of the day and God's presence is with them. Then we see here that God's presence is in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Later, we would see that God's presence would indwell the temple of Solomon. But then something would happen. The presence of God would leave the the temple of Solomon. It would be declared Ichabod. The glory has departed. And then we see God's glory and God's presence show back up with the birth of Jesus. And... Whereas in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were the primary means of God's presence. We see in the gospel that Jesus becomes God's tabernacle. Yahweh's very presence with his people would be Jesus, the word who was born and made flesh and tabernacled among his people. And they beheld his glory, the same glory that they saw in the wilderness. They would behold the glory of Jesus. Jesus would be full of grace and truth, just as Yahweh described himself as full of mercy and truth. So Jesus is the picture of God's tabernacle 
when Jesus was walking the earth. Jesus equated himself with the temple in Jerusalem. And then when Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit fell on the church on the day of Pentecost, the ongoing revelation of God's presence would show that the church would be the new covenant temple of God as the dwelling place of God's presence on the earth. So now there is no need for a tabernacle. There is no need for a temple for God's people are the carriers of God's presence. So you see how that idea of temple and presence is brought over from Exodus into the New Testament. And the final New Testament picture that we'll see today is the picture of deliverance and salvation. The Exodus event where God brought his people out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of Egypt, is an Old Testament picture of New Testament salvation. You see, salvation is not just forgiveness. The word salvation means deliverance. It means to be set free. And that's what Jesus does for us. You know, a lot of times we give an altar call, come up and and receive Jesus as Savior and He will forgive you. But you see, salvation is even better than that. What if instead of saying, come and receive Jesus and He'll forgive you, what if we said, come and receive Jesus and He will deliver you? He'll deliver you from sin. He'll deliver you from the things that the enemy tries to put on you to make you a slave to sin, a slave to your old life, a slave from the world, a slave to your own thoughts. Salvation means deliverance. Just as Israel was delivered from Pharaoh and the bonds of Egypt, the believers delivered from Satan and the power of sin. Jesus became victorious over sin, Satan, and the powers of this world to deliver us from the influence of these things and to set us free and to bring us into the kingdom of God, to bring us into our spiritual Canaan land, our place of rest in Jesus Christ. So Jesus came as a new Moses, a better Moses, to bring about a second exodus, bringing his people out of not physical Egypt, but out of spiritual Egypt, not out of the hands of physical Pharaoh, but out of the hands of spiritual Pharaoh, Satan setting his people free. And I can hear Charlton Heston saying, let my people go. And that's what Jesus said on the cross. So there are some wonderful truths that we bring from Exodus into the New Testament. So you can see that Exodus is multifaceted on many levels and speaks to many different ways. It speaks historically. We believe that these events are rooted in history. It speaks theologically and teaches us something about God. It speaks prophetically about Jesus and prophetically about the church. That's what makes this book so unique and so special. So we are going to close out our introduction today to the book of Exodus. Next week, we're going to pick up on the birth of Moses and the story of Moses, God's great deliverer. So we're looking forward to that. Thank you again for joining us today uh, for the Old Testament for Grown Us. We hope it's been a blessing to you. God bless you.